Well, as we prepare, am I on? No, I'm not. No sound. So can you all hear me? Is that it? It's on? Okay. Somebody left a little cartoon up here for me, a pearls before swine. And so you have this little mouse and whatever this other critter is. And a little mouse says, I've started reading the Bible a little bit every day. And the other one said, do you read it in any certain order? And the mouse says, yeah, I seek out the parts that let me judge others and avoid anything that makes me feel bad. Is there any other way to read the Bible? <laughs> Probably how most people read the Bible. Okay. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them by means of truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So before we get started, we need to have a few moments of silent prayer so that we can uh, confess any known sin and silent prayer to the Lord to make sure we're in right relationship with him. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so thankful we can come together tonight to fellowship around the teaching of your word, to be reminded of your grace and your goodness, to be reminded that there is a plan and a purpose to all things in human history, and to be reminded that we have a special role in this as Gentile believers in the church age, foreseen and prophesied as far back as Genesis and that we have a special role as church-age believers. Father, we are thankful for what is revealed about the Abrahamic covenant, and in light of what is going on in the Middle East now, we are uh, thankful we have this information that we can have a correct perspective according to reality and understanding what, it, what the real issues are that are taking place in the Middle East. And so we pray that tonight as we continue to study about the Abrahamic covenant that you will give us great insight into its significance. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, we're continuing in our interlock series. And as you know, this is sort of a, it's a good survey because it put, the goal is to put the parts together so that we understand how, what the big picture is. And that is important because a lot of people like that little cartoon I read before we got started. A lot of people just think of uh, the Bible. They read a passage here, a passage there. They read through two or three Psalms, rarely realizing that they ought to go back where there's historical uh, context provided to go back and read it in First or Second Samuel. And so it's it's really an exercise in ignorance because people don't understand what the picture is, what's going on here. Why is God telling us about these things? And that's one of the things I think is so important for the reason that I'm doing this, just to remind you, is because we have um, 
we have kids in prep school. We have prep, prep, new prep school teachers mostly. And this is a curriculum that we're having to teach our kids because we have to train them to think biblically. And that begins with just understanding the flow, but then bringing out different things along the way because what the Bible helps us to understand is that a lot of issues that are being taught in the public schools and that are communicated in various ways of media and other things are contrary to a a worldview that is based upon the Bible. And a fundamental reality is the Abrahamic covenant and God's plan for the Jewish people. And I think that it is an, an evidence of God's plan for the Jewish people that again and again and again through history, they alone of all the peoples, of all the nations in human history, consistently get targeted for extermination over and over and over again. And as believers in God's revelation, the Bible, we understand that God has a plan and a purpose for the Jewish people. And that that plan and purpose will come to completion in the millennial kingdom. And that as a result of that, the promises that God made in the Old Testament will all be fulfilled. The covenants will all be brought to completion. They will all be fulfilled. And that this is part of an even broader conflict, which I refer to as the angelic revolt. And that Satan has been defeated at the cross and his only hope of getting a reprieve from eternity in the lake of fire is that if he can prevent God from fulfilling his promises, and if he can destroy the Jewish people before God fulfills his promise to Abraham that he would inherit, possess the land that God get, get promised him in the Abrahamic covenant, then Satan will have blocked God and prevented that. And that that's the root of anti-Semitism. And many of us, if we had been asked five years ago if we would see the kinds of things that are happening uh, on college campuses today in terms of these anti-Semitic riots, then we, we would not have predicted that. It's interesting, listen to a podcast the other day from Jensa, J-I-N-S-A, which is, um, I can never remember what it stands for, but it has to do, it's a Jewish an American Jewish organization focusing on the uh, national security issues of America. I think it's the Jewish Institute for the National Security of America. I think that's what it is. Excellent material. I think I've had the the, uh, the president, CEO Michael, what's his last name? Mikowski. Michael Mikowski. I think I've had him here once before several years ago. And um, he's just excellent. But they were the discussion in the podcast the other day was on what's happening in Britain. And the British observer was basically saying a lot of the when they had all of these demonstrations and everything in England in the last couple of months said it was pretty much a party atmosphere everywhere. It he said we're fearful because of what we see in the US. Those are not party a- atmospheres. And it is horrendous to see how far left America has gone. It is scary, and it scares us, and how far left the universities in America have gone. So 
just a little observation there, but this boils down to what is happening with the Jewish people within the framework of this angelic revolt that we have studied before. So uh, understanding the Abrahamic covenant is a critical uh, feature in that, to be able to think about world history, think about what's going on uh, in the Middle East. So last time we looked at the call of Abraham. This time we're looking at the covenant with Abraham. Three basic topics in this lesson. The signing of the Abrahamic covenant, which I touched on last time. Uh, election in terms of God's choice of Abraham. God chose Abraham, not for his individual salvation, as we'll see, but for a purpose in terms of creating a counterculture that would preserve, that would receive the revelation of God, preserve the revelation of God, and be the line through which the promised Messiah, the Savior, would come. So just to remind you, there are three components to the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, Land, God promised specific real estate. Seed, meaning descendants. But it's important that that word can be either a plural or a singular because ultimately the promised seed is the singular, the Messiah, who will provide salvation that will be a blessing, a worldwide blessing for all people. And each of those are further developed in covenants we'll study in the future, the Israel land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. So God said to Abraham in this that he would give him land, land, specific real estate. I was listening to Someone today on the news that was saying we can't really stop this until we deal with the problem of the occupation of the land. Well, that's the problem. There is no occupation of the land by Israel. And so we have to understand those issues. And that that illegally this land was given to Israel at the San Remo Accords, voted on, by 56 or 57 nations in the League of Nations that settled all of the boundaries of the current countries in the Middle East, not just Israel, but all of the, the boundaries for Syria, the which would include the southern boundary for Turkey, by the way, boundaries for Iraq, boundaries for Iran in terms of the uh, western boundaries, boundaries for Saudi Arabia, the northern boundary, uh, boundaries for uh, Transjordan or, or the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, so all of this was decided legally at the end of World War I, and those borders were established then, and who would live there was established there. Second is descendants that through Abraham there he would have numerous descendants, uh, great nation, and then he would make Abraham famous, and Abraham would be a blessing through his lineage, through his descendants, a blessing to the entire world. Hebrews 11.8 reminds us in the New Testament that Abram was called by God. God said to go to a place. God did not define him. He didn't give him the coordinates. He didn't tell him what the boundaries were. He said, just go. And Abram left trusting God. He did not know where he was being taken, 11, Hebrews 11.8, and that he never actually possessed the land. They were nomads in the land. They lived in tents. And even though God made a promise, Genesis twelve seven to your descendants, I will give this land. There's no condition there. 
It's just a clear statement that God said, based on his character, I'm giving you the land that's yours forever and ever. Genesis 13, 14, uh, Genesis chapter 13, verses 14, 15, God says to Abram, lift up your eyes. He's standing there overlooking, he's in Samaria, and he's overlooking the plain of the Jordan and all around, and God says, look, everywhere you look, north, south, east, west, everywhere, all the land that you see, I'm giving it to you. So that's that's the the covenant. So we looked last time in terms of the call of Abraham, God calling him to go to a place that God would give him, and tonight we're looking at the covenant, this contract, one-sided contract. So this is like the covenant with Noah. The covenant with Noah is called a unilateral contract, one-sided you know, for younger kids, one-sided. One person promises to give something to someone else without any conditions. And uh, so th- there are only two parties to the, uh, or three parties actually, to the Noahic covenant. God made the covenant with mankind, the descendants, Noah and his all of his descendants, which includes all of us, all Gentiles, all people on the earth today, and the animals. The promises, basically, no future global flood. God would never destroy the earth by water again. God alone signed it, and he put his signature in the air, in the rainbow. That is his signature. Noah did nothing. God said, this is what I'm going to do, and here's the sign of my promise. So it is an unconditional. Actually, every covenant that God made in the Old Testament is unconditional. The difference with the Mosaic covenant is it was temporary because there are sort of conditions even in the Abrahamic covenant. I'm giving you the title deed. You're going to have the title deed forever and ever, but you can't live there unless you're obedient. If you're disobedient, I'm going to kick you out, but it's still yours. So unconditional, we have, pastors have these discussions all the time. What's a good word? Hebrews 8, temporary versus permanent. The Mosaic covenant was never intended to be permanent. It is replaced by the new covenant. So the Abrahamic covenant, land, Davidic, and new covenants are eternal covenants. And there are no conditions. They're unilateral, one-sided. So We talked about the parties to the covenant. God is party of the first part, and Abraham and his descendants are party of the second covenant, which excludes us. Back to this chart. So we see the parties are God, Abraham, and and his descendants. Not through Ishmael, not through after Sarah died, he married again. He married Keturah and had other sons and daughters, including Midian. We know of the Midianites because of of um, uh, Moses' wife and his father-in-law Jethro. Um, the, but the Abrahamic covenant is only through the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not Ishmael. Muslims come along and say, no, 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 it's not Isaac, it's Ishmael. So if their God says it's Isaac and Ishmael, and the Jewish God says it's Abraham, I mean, if their God says it's Abraham and Ishmael, and 
the Jewish God, Yahweh, says it's Abraham and Isaac. And the Muslim God is anti-Jewish, and the Jewish God is pro-Jewish. Are they the same God? Simple question. Absolutely not. So people come along and say, well, we all worship the same God. No, we don't. No, we don't. Um, the signatories, both covenants, God alone, and both are unconditional or unilateral. So the parties to the Abrahamic covenant, it's an everlasting covenant. Genesis seventeen seven. God is speaking. And I want to go through and highlight how many times God refers to the Abrahamic covenant as my covenant. Notice that. He doesn't ever say, it's our covenant. He doesn't ever say, it's your covenant. He always refers to the Abrahamic covenant as my covenant. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. The legal terms of the Abrahamic covenant... We have the land, specific borders are given. I just uh, related these verses in Genesis 13, 14, verses 14 and 15. The specific borders are laid out in chapter 15, verses 18 to 21. From the river of Egypt, there's debate about whether that's the Nile or this uh, wadi. A wadi is an intermittent stream that is on the sort of north-central Sinai Peninsula, flows from south to north, I think the majority would tilt there that the Sinai was not part of the promised land, but you will find a great deal of debate on that. But it goes from there to the Euphrates. That picks up a lot of Syria and all of the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan, and some of Arabia. All is part of the land that God is giving to Israel. They have a title deed, an eternal title deed to that. They've never fully occupied the land that God promised. These specific borders are given for an everlasting possession. It's called all the land of Canaan. Actually, it's more than that. So again, I'm going to skip that. Here's the a map. See, down here would be the edge of the Nile in the delta. So some people will take it here. Right here you have the brook of Egypt, river of the Wadi El Arish. So that doesn't go all the way down. goes down to Kadesh Barnea. The green shaded area is the area that is allotted to Israel during the time of Joshua. Uh, the area to the north that's shaded up here uh, would be some approxim an approximation of what would have once been Canaan. And there's all of this territory pretty much is taken over by Solomon and King David and Solomon, but not all that is shaded. And some people will take it from here all the way east, all the way to the Euphrates, taking in all of, all of Jordan. Genesis twenty two seventeen talks about the descendants 
And it is, as I pointed out last time, you should note this in your Bible, uh, that the it's his enemies because it's a singular pronoun, third person singular on that line. Descendants is plural because stars are plural up in the first part. And then it says your descendant, this is a messianic prophecy, your descendant shall possess the gate of his enemies. Worldwide blessing, Genesis twenty-two eighteen in your seed. Now, some of these translations are using the word descendant instead of the word seed. The use of the word seed seems archaic to a lot of people. But what's important about translating it as seed is seed in English is a, um, is a noun that can either be plural or singular. The word seed in Hebrew can be either singular or plural. And it picks up on the translation of Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman. Because, because what is being tracked through all the genealogies, the descent from Eve all the way through to Jesus. That's why the genealogies are there. They're not written so God can bore you during your devotions when you have to read First Chronicles chapter 1 through 7. I always tell people, just skip it. If you're going to study, there's some great stuff to look at there. But if you're just reading... Don't go through the genealogies. You don't recognize any of the names. You're just going through an exercise in boredom. So just kind of scan past it, maybe highlight a name or two that you might recognize. So in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. That's got to refer to, to the Messiah. Through him, the world will be blessed. Romans 3, 2. And notice that it's the world that will be blessed, not just Jews. Not just the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but, but all of the world. Romans 3, 2. Um, uh, the Jews are given and committed the oracles of God. Revelation of God will be committed to the Jews. They'll receive the revelation, write it down, and preserve it. Isaiah forty three ten through 12 talks about uh, what God is doing through them, that they are his witnesses. And my servant, whom I have chosen there, my servant refers to Israel. Other places, it refers to the Messiah. So you have the worldwide blessing that they're going to preserve God's word, God's revelation for all times. So you have at Tower of Babel, the pagan culture reaches another zenith, and they are going to build this tower to counter God's plan. Uh, God is going to separate them into tribal groups and nations by changing their languages. And to counter them, God is going to call Abraham to separate from the evil culture. This is God's counterculture that Israel was supposed to be to stand as a light to whom? A light to the nation. See, God wasn't ignoring the rest of the human race. But he is picking one group through whom he is going to bless all of the others, all of the uh, Gentiles. And that in the Old Testament, Israel was to function as a missionary because of their location. Everybody would have to come to them. All the caravans would come through Israel. All of the travelers would go through Israel to go anywhere by land. You had to go through Israel where they would see something different. 
That was the plan. So Genesis 3.15 takes us back to that uh, reference to the seed. It's all about the seed. In John 4.22 in the New Testament, Jesus says to the woman at the well, you worship what you do not know. We know what we worship. See, she's a Gentile. She's a Samaritan. She's not really considered Jewish. So he says, you worship what you don't know. The Samaritans had their own spin-off religion, spin-off cult from the Mosaic worship. They only recognized the Pentateuch, not any of the rest of the Old Testament. And he says, salvation is of the Jews. In Galatians 3.8, the Scripture, Paul says, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. God's plan was always to provide salvation for the Gentiles. And he quotes what God said to Abram, in you all the nations shall be blessed. Romans 15, 8 and 8 through 11 in verse 9, it says that the Gentiles might glorify God. So you see, the plan was for the Gentiles to be saved, to glorify God. And then quotes from the Psalms in Romans 15.10 and 15.11, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Gentiles were to be saved and join with the Jews. Romans 15.11, Praise the Lord. Again, reciting from the Psalms, all you Gentiles. Now, we get to the signing of the Abrahamic Covenant. We have the two types, which I've already explained, either conditional or bilateral, which is a two-way covenant, or unconditional or unilateral, which is a one-way covenant. So far, every covenant, the creation covenant, Genesis 1, the Adamic revision in Genesis 3. By the way, it just dawned on me this last week, what you have after the fall is, is you almost always have a sacrifice with a covenant. Not always. A lot of people think that a sacrifice is what begins the covenant. No, the sacrifice isn't. Where's the sacrifice in the Davidic covenant? There was no sacrifice. Where's the sacrifice in the land covenant? There was no sacrifice. Sacrifice is it's the oath. God swears an oath. When he's, when that oath is sworn, that's what, it, that's what begins or puts the covenant into into effect. So the Mosaic covenant is temporary. It has a uh, timeline. We get to how the covenant is made, and this is described in Genesis 15, 7 to 12. Pay attention. God is speaking. He says to Abraham, I am Yahweh who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. The whole reason I called you out was to give you this land, to possess it. That's what inherit means, to possess it. Verse 8, and he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So God said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. Okay, I've got this labeled wrong. I've got to fix that. 
Um, he didn't cut the birds in two. And I'm going to show you a picture of that in just a minute. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. So God is going to now sign the covenant with Abram. And that's described in verses 17 and 18. We have the uh, pot, uh, smoking oven here, Dutch oven, and over here we have the flaming torch. And in verse 7 we read, it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark. And trust me, when you didn't have electricity, dark was black. And suddenly there is this smoking oven and a flaming torch that begins to go through the pieces. So you have your heifer split in half on each side. Then you have the goat split in half, half on each side. The ram on each side. You had a young pigeon on one side and a dove on the other side. That's what I've got to fix. Okay? So, and the red is the blood from the sacrifices. If you have ever butchered an animal, if you're a hunter, I've hunted a lot, and if you, when you begin to do all of that, there is a lot of the uh, offal, the innards, the intestines and everything comes out and a lot of blood. So it's, it's bloody. And what else do you have? First thing you notice is where these flies come from. And then you get these vultures that are showing up for Abraham. So he's got to shoo all of this away while this is happening. And God causes a deep sleep to fall upon Abram so that Abram is not involved in the signing ceremony. God alone passes through. God, represented by the uh, smoking oven and the flaming torch, passes through between the animals, indicating that he is making this covenant and obligating himself alone to fulfilling the covenant. When you look at the Noahic covenant, the promises there, God says... I'm never going to destroy the earth again by water. Can a human being guarantee that? No. When he comes here and he says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you, and I'm going to bless the whole world through you, can can a human being guarantee that? No. So only God can guarantee it. So God guarantees that. We get a picture of this kind of signing of a ceremony in in a covenant in Jeremiah 34, uh, 18 where Jeremiah writes uh, um, uh, that God says, and I will give the men who transgressed my covenant. Notice how he uses that again. And there he's talking about the Sinai covenant, the Mosaic law. They've transgressed my covenant who have not performed the words of the covenant which they made before me. See, they were disobedient. They became idolaters. And um, the way in which they did, they observed the covenant, they cut the calf in two and passed between the parts of it. So they passed between the parts of it. So that's, that's a bilateral covenant. So again, we see the map. I'm just going to skip that. Um, so with the Noahic covenant, God alone signs it with the rainbow. And then the punishment for failure to fulfill the covenant is God takes the curse. This is too sensitive. 
God takes the curse upon himself. There we go. And in the Abrahamic covenant, God alone passes between the two halves of the animals. And again, he takes the, judge, the judgment upon himself. If it's broken, he guarantees that he will keep it. And so it's not dependent upon Abram. One of the interesting things about the rainbow is that the term for rainbow is not, doesn't include the word rain. The Hebrew word uh, keshet just means a bow. It's the same word that's used for a bow and arrow. So that when you look at a rainbow in the sky, it looks like a bow that has been pulled back by the bowstring and is in an arc. And so it's a figure of a picture of the bow as if it had an arrow that would shoot toward God. That God is the one who is symbolizing this, that that it is dependent upon him, and he is the one that would be under a curse if he failed to fulfill his promise. And what we see is that God can always be trusted to fulfill his promises. We always have to go back to, well, God made these promises. Well, what? Yeah, let's not have a little God. God made these promises. Who is God? He's omnipotent. There's nothing he can't do. He will always be able to do everything he promises to do. He will never break his word. He is dependable. He is faithful. He is immutable, unchangeable. So God is always faithful to his covenants. In Genesis 17, 3, which is where we see a fuller explanation of the covenant, Abraham falls on his face and God talks with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. See, he's going to give him a new name, Abraham, father of, which means father of many nations. The Hebrew word A-B, like Abba, is a diminutive. Abba is like, Ab is like dad. Abba is like daddy. It's a, it's a intimate form. So Ab is father or dad. And then Raham is, refers to many nations. So his name goes from Avram, to, which means exalted father, to father of many nations. Sarah, Sarai, originally, is princess, and then Sarah means the mother of many. So God says, your name will no longer be Avram, but your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. Now the sign of the covenant, and I'm not going to read the whole passage, that takes time, but the focus is on the sign of the covenant is that every male descendant of Abraham that is a a participant in the covenant is to be circumcised. And so in 1710, um, we read God saying, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants, your seed after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between you and me. Now, the picture here is the problem that we have is our flesh. It's the sin nature. And so the spiritual significance of, of um, circumcision is that only God can deal with the real problem, which is our sinfulness. 
and we can't do it on our own. And God is the one eventually who will remove sinfulness completely from us. But that is why when you get into the scriptures, it talks about a spiritual circumcision, which is the reality behind the physical circumcision. Just as in baptism, you have a physical ritual, but it pictures the spiritual reality of our union uh, with Christ. And so this gives the description, I want you to remember this, that circumcision is not the sign of the, Abraham, of the Mosaic Covenant. It's the sign of the Abrahamic Covenant. But it, circumcision is also part of the Mosaic Covenant, and that was what happened with the Judaizers, the legalists, that Paul's dealing with in, in Galatians, is that they were saying that, that uh, the Gentiles had to be circumcised in order to uh, benefit from the, from the covenant. That was part of salvation, so it was faith plus cir- circumcision. And, um, but that was misusing the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Romans 5.12, therefore just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, thus death spread to all men. And this is a problem that you've got in um, with all of mankind. You have all kinds of situations today where you have people trying to fix the problem of humanity. We have all kinds of attempts. We have discussions about global warming and, and climate change. We have to fix it. We have discussion about economic uh, disaster. We have to fix it. We have inequity of the distribution of, of uh, benefits. And so we have to fix this so that everybody can have the same, the same thing. And all of this is the problem of sin. Man cannot legislate a fix for sin. There is no form of government which will change the wicked depravity of the human heart. So God is teaching something through uh, circumcision that is a spiritual lesson that only when God solves the problem of the removal of the flesh, that is the sin nature, will we be able to have a perfect environment. So we see that Noah and his family lead their, their survival, their descendants through, the, through Ham, leads to the uh, Tower of Babel in this chart. The men are not circumcised. God calls Abraham to completely separate from the evil culture so that circumcision will set them apart physically through Isaac, Jacob, and their descendants all the way down to the promised Savior. Okay, that takes us through the first part, which is on the Abrahamic Covenant, And the next part is on election, God's choice of Abraham for this covenant. God chose Abraham not because there was something special about Abraham other than that Abraham had uh, imputed righteousness. Excuse me. God had chose Abraham not for salvation, 
um, but for a specific role in his plan of salvation. Due to some other things that I've been studying, and I did a presentation on a paper I wrote some years ago on Romans 10, and um, doing some other studies in Romans 11, that section, Romans 9, 10, and 11, has been in front of me the last few days. And it's amazing when you look at what is said in Romans 9, that people think that this is talking about God choosing Jacob instead of Esau for salvation. And they look at all of those examples there in terms of of salvation, but there's nothing there that talks about salvation. In fact, they're corporate terms. You go back to Genesis, and God um, God told Rebekah that there were two nations struggling in her womb, Esau and Jacob. So it's not individual, it's corporate. So this is important to understand this. This is the problem with the determinism that developed out of Augustine's theology in the 4th century, 5th century, and further developed by reformers Martin Luther, John Calvin, others. Calvin and Luther were both, Calvin was trained at a, Cal, at a deterministic Augustinian university at the Sorbonne, the University of Paris. And so he's totally influenced by Augustine. And so was Martin Luther. He was an Augustinian monk. And so they just, they, they, they got salvation mostly right, that it didn't have anything to do with the church, but they were still infected by this determinism that continued to hang in there through Augustinian theology. So we can't read election in terms of choice for eternal salvation or choice for justification that wasn't why God chose Abraham. In Genesis 15:6, if you read it in the Hebrew, you have one verb tense in verses 1 through 5. It's an imperfect tense, and that imperfect tense indicates continual action. It's just the flow of narrative. But then when you get to verse 6, he changes the verb tense to a perfect tense in the Hebrew. In, in, in Hebrew, you only have perfect tense and imperfect tense. So when you see a shift change like that, it's very important. And what he does is he stops the flow of the story, and he's reminding the readers of something. And so it's a parenthetical statement. And after he describes what, he, what is described in the first five verses, he's, he's basically saying, now remember, uh, he, being Abraham, Abram, Abram had already believed in the Lord. Before Genesis 12.1, Abram had already believed in the Lord and he had already accounted it to him for righteousness. And then the verb tense shifts again back to the imperfect tense in verse 7. So this verse is really important. It's not talking about something that Abram is believing right then and there when God had told him, no, 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 no. We're not going to do this through your servant Eliezer. We're going to do it through a son from your own body. And Abram, and the text isn't saying Abram believed that. It's saying Abram had already believed. This was a blessing God was giving him because Abram had already become a believer before Genesis, uh, Genesis 12, 1. In Gen- Jeremiah 18, God explains election to the prophet Jeremiah. 
Now, this is another verse. You read Calvinist after Calvinist theologian, and they will go to the potter and the potter's wheel in Jeremiah 18, and they will apply this to individual salvation. Individual salvation isn't there. Just look at it. So God is giving instructions to Jeremiah. He says, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my words. That's an interesting phrase. How did he hear God's words? We don't know. There are a lot of times God speaks to somebody in the Old Testament. We don't know. Did they just hear him in their head? Was it out loud? Could you have recorded it? In some places, it's clear when God speaks to all of the Jews, all of the Israelites at the base of Mount Sinai, they could all hear his voice. They're not hearing it in their head. It's not some kind of mass psychosis. If you'd had a recorder, you could have recorded that. But other times, we don't know. God just says, I will cause you to hear my words. And so Jeremiah then says, so I went down to the potter's house. I mean, if God tells you to go to the potter's house, you, you, know, you don't go to Neiman Marcus instead. So I went to the potter's house, and there he was making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he made, so he's making a pot. He's, you know, he's running his foot up and down so the wheel will turn, and he's shaping a pot. The vessel that he made, and this represents the human race prior to the Tower of Babel. The, pot, the potter is God making a vessel, the human race. The vessel that he made, which stands for the human race before Babel, uh, the, that he made of clay, was marred in the hands of the potter. So he made it again into another vessel. See, we went to plan A was from Adam to Noah. What happened? Everyone did what was evil. Their imagination was evil continuously. They were horrific. You think of what you think is the worst place on earth, that the darkest, most evil stuff is going on. That was going on all over the world before the flood. That's how bad it was, probably even worse. Okay? So then we go to plan B. That's Noah to Babel. But they're universalists. They're one-worlders. They're global government. So God says, no, we're going to go to plan C. Plan C is uh, Abraham. Plan B is this first vessel that's mentioned in verse 4. It was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to make. So he's just watching this. That's just what the potter's doing. He started off making one clay pot. It's somehow it messed up. He gets rid of that, starts over. He's making a second vessel, and then God interprets it. Verse 5, Then the word of the Lord came to me and said, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter? Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand. That second vessel represents Israel. And God is saying, that I can do with you as I will. He's not talking to them about individual salvation. He's talking about the destiny of the nation. And that was God's sovereign choice going back when he chose Abram. So God chose Abram. He's going to go to plan. Why is that doing that? He's going to go to plan C. From B, you have the pagan kingdom of man. 
And so now God's going to start a counterculture, which is what we are calling the kingdom of God. Jeremiah 18.4, this is the first pottery jar that is falling apart. And so we're going to go to plan C, and he's going to start with a new lump of clay. Now the question that comes up, and there's a boxed out section for discussion in the curriculum, and the question is, is God unfair? How can he choose uh, one man and not offer the same thing to others? What about equality? Well, God is choosing this one man so that the others can be blessed as he is blessed. He's got to change it because when he's working through everyone, they turn their back on him. They rebelled against him. So we got to have to go back to the creator-creature distinction. God is God. We aren't. Basic fundamental reality. And so God can do as he will based on his omniscience and his omnipotence. So he can choose through whom he is going to work. He doesn't have to give everyone the same uh, blessing that he'll work with everyone uh, in the same way. First of all, we have to recognize that, that God is righteous. Now, if you look at the curriculum... What you will notice is that the three attributes of God that they have listed are that God, first of all, is all holy, second, all righteous, and third, all knowing. Now, we have all been together long enough to know that I don't think holy is a way of talking about the justice and righteousness of God. I was taught that. Others have taught that. Dr. Ryrie says righteousness and justice equals the holiness of God. Many others have said that. But that's not what the Hebrew word means. The Hebrew word means that there is no other God like God. He's one of a kind. So he is unique. He's unique in his sovereignty. He is unique in his righteousness. He is unique in his justice. He is unique in his love. Holy is not a synonym for righteous and just. It includes that, but holy really applies to every attribute of God. So I change this to all righteous, all just, and all knowing. God is righteous. That is the standard of his character. He is just. He will always apply his perfect standards to every decision he makes in relation to his creatures. And he is omniscient. He knows all of the facts. And so therefore he is always going to make the correct decision and he will be just. Abram says, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Yes, he will always do right because he is righteous and because he knows all of the facts. But mankind on the other side is fallen sinful, limited. We're corrupt. And so because of that, we are self-centered instead of God-centered. So first of all, we see that God is uh, the creator. So he is sovereign. He can do as he will. Second, God is righteous, just, and all-knowing. Third, God is loving. In the New Testament, we're told in 1 John 4, 8 and in 4, 16, 
the just blanket statement, God is love. And so God is perfect love. He defines love. How God relates to his creatures is what love is all about. And it is based on knowledge. So what we see when it comes to uh, the covenant that he makes, that God sovereignly chose to make this contract with man. He makes it with uh, Noah for all mankind, and again with Abraham. Now what's interesting is in Deuteronomy he says, I didn't choose you because you were so great because you are rebellious, stubborn, stiff-necked people. In other words, God looks at them and he says, I didn't choose you because I saw something good in you. In fact, just the opposite. I saw that you were just the most contentious problem child that anybody could imagine. But I'm going to make you a trophy of grace. So he took what he perceived would be the worst case scenario and he's going to demonstrate his grace through them. Second, Yahweh sovereignly chose Abraham out of everyone alive at that time. So there were other believers. It's not that Abraham was the only one because Melchizedek, who is the king of Salem, which is Jerusalem, is a priest of the Most High God. And so he is a believer. There were many other believers. Job lived probably a little bit after Abraham, but at that same time of the patriarchs. Job was alive in the land of Uz, which is probably in Arabia somewhere. But you had many other believers. But God says, for the most part, all these Gentiles have rebelled against me. I've got to work through one group, and through them I will bless the whole world. So Melchizedek is a priest of God Most High, El Elyon, and Abraham, who's not royalty, he's just a nomad shepherd. His ancestors worshipped other gods, and God calls him out, and he's going to work through him. So the call of Abraham was a means to an end. It was for the sake of all mankind. So that brings us to this chart in in the group. On the left, you have the promise, the three parts to the Abrahamic covenant, land, seed, and worldwide blessing. The middle column describes what uh, God has promised to Abraham and his descendants. They'll possess an eternal title to the land, a piece of physical real estate described in the scriptures in the Middle East. In regard to descendants, they will be numerous. They will survive throughout history. Nothing's going to wipe out Israel. You're not going to wipe out the Jewish people right now. It's going to come close by the end of the tribulation, but we're not even close to the tribulation yet, (coughs) though that's a relative term. So it is through his family that the promised Savior will come. And through him there will be a worldwide blessing. We already see a lot of it. I mean, just think of all of the inventions that Jewish people come up with through the centuries. It's fun. Every now and then I need to save one of these, but there's an email that goes around and it lists all of the uh, various international awards that are give it, given to Jews. 
and and it's usually something humorous in there because you'll have these anti-Semites who say, well, I'm not going to have anything to do with the Jewish people. Okay, well, you can't take a, this vaccine, you can't take this vaccine, you can't, uh, if you've got a sexually transmitted disease, you can't get treatment for that. You can't do this, you can't do that, you can't eat this, you can't eat that, because all of this was developed by Jewish people. You can't have a cell phone, you can't have an answering uh, answering device on your cell phone, because that was all invented by the tech people in Israel. So you can't have anything. You probably can't even have uh, half the convenience devices you take for granted every day. Now, they were... Uh, invented by Jewish people. For all mankind, uh, you, there's the earth. There's the entirety of the earth and the location of the new Jerusalem in, 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 in Jerusalem. Uh, in the future, all believers in Christ from every nation will be adopted into Abram's family. We're the spiritual descendants of Abram's family. And so... Um, there's, there will be in the millennial kingdom, and then I may need to work, rework that. Uh, the blessings on Abraham's family will bless all mankind. That's what will happen. Church, believers in Christ are spiritual descendants, but we have a distinct destiny from uh, Jewish believers. Okay, in this chart, you have the kingdom of man bases everything on works. Man saves himself through his own ideas. But in the kingdom of God, it's based on grace. God will save man. (coughs) This is done through um, the choice of Abraham and Abraham's uh, descendants. The land, we have this map, which is in the curriculum, uh, Abram goes from Ur to Haran, then from there down to Shechem in, uh, in, in the Promised Land, and then he goes down to Egypt. He'll go back. They go down to Egypt with with uh, Joseph and and Jacob, and then they return. And this is the land that God has promised them. They've never fully taken it. So this is what we see. We have the descendants <coughs> of. Shem uh, will dwell with in the tents of Japheth. We're Japhethites. And the last thing we're looking at in this lesson is the kingdom of man versus the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of man, as we've developed this, we see that kingdom of man is based on works, human effort. Man can solve all of man's problems. Man can save himself through his own ideas, through his technology, through all of these things. God is going, man is going to bring in a utopia. And so this was uh, foreshadowed by what they said at the Tower of Babel, that this will make us famous. This will give us a name. But on the opposite side, God said to Abram, I will make your name great. And I will bless you. It's based on grace. God is going to save man, and God is going to bless man. So man's way is simple. Humans think that they can save themselves. They can provide a utopia. They can find meaning and happiness and purpose apart from Yahweh. But Yahweh says he's the one who will save. 
He's the one who created everybody. Only a relationship based on faith in the Creator God, the Sovereign Redeemer, can provide meaning, purpose, and happiness. Proverbs 14, 12. Twice in Proverbs we have this statement. There's a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. You need to think about that a lot. People have a lot of great ideas. Society comes up with a lot of great ideas. They sound good, but the way of man is the way of death. The way of God is the way of life. And so it comes down to this conflict between the kingdom of man, the kingdom of man, and the kingdom of God. So with that, we're, we've wrapped up the first lesson now in the second, uh, second in, uh, section of the interlock and established the basics for the Abrahamic covenant. Next time we'll come back and we'll be talking more about Abraham, but now things start moving faster because we'll be covering greater sections of the Old Testament leading up to, um, le- leading up to uh, King David and beyond that. So anybody have any questions? No questions. All right, I forgot to give the announcement, so let me give them now. There will be no class next Tuesday night. We will be at pre-trib next week, so no Bible class on the week of pre-trib, and we'll be back on Thursday night for our study in Philippians. And then that next Sunday on December the 10th, immediately after church, we're going to have our annual Christmas Thanksgiving dinner. It's halfway between Thanksgiving. I told I was telling one pastor that today, and they said, "Well, that's really a great idea. Rather than having everybody just just absolutely overstuff themselves twice, you only do it once, and we do a really good job of it." Okay, so those are the three announcements: pre-trib, no Bible class next week, and Christmas Thanksgiving dinner on December. Uh, the December the 10th. The church is going to provide the turkey and ham, so y'all bring the sides and desserts, and we'll need some people to help with the cleanup. Okay? Father, thank you for this time for us to be able to go through this material and to understand the significance of the Abrahamic covenant and that it is the turning point, uh, one of the two major turning points in that moves human history. Help us to understand these things as we go forward. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.